For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So maybe, well, maybe not all of you know Alex Peltz, who's um, uh, one of one of our Ancient Dragons End Gate chaplains, and also a former UC Divinity uh, School intern uh, at Ancient Dragon. So I think Sophia's in the room. Yeah. So Sophia, there, raise your hands. Anyway, Alex, this this is Sophia, who's our, our current UC Divinity School intern. Um, so. Uh, we, I, I feel like we're honored to have in our sangha, uh, I was trying to count them before, 10 or 12 different uh, working chaplains um, in different places, uh, some in other states, one in another country. Anyway, um, so thank you, Alex, for your work and for giving the talk tonight. And welcome, everyone. Thank you, Saigon, for having me. This is the first. Can everyone hear me when I talk at this volume? Yeah. Okay. Um, this is the first time that I have been at Ebenezer in this particular arrangement. And it's very nice to be here in person and to sit with other people in person because when I try and sit alone, I can't usually do more than 20 minutes. So thank you all. Um, when I first. Excuse me, Alex, are you wearing a mask? I am. Yeah, we've we've decided that the protocols there is that the speaker does not wear, need to wear a mask, and that'll help us hear you also. So, thank you. Of course. So, when I first began thinking about this Dharma talk, um, I felt a little bit of pressure, and I felt a little bit of weight in considering what it was that I was going to share on this occasion, um, because when I think about what type of Dharma talks I enjoy most and what, what Dharma talks I think are good to hear, they're ones that elucidate something about our practice and what it means to uh, practice Buddhism. I think that our Dharma talks here at Ancient Dragon and you know, certainly in, in the books we read and the written Dharma talks we read can bring together these sort of ideas that we have in Buddhism with the actual boots on the ground practices of our day-to-day life. And so I want to write about something practical um, and I'm racking my brains trying to think about what, what sort of practice thing can I write about? And as is often the case, something just kind of drops in my lap. Um, This was unfortunately not a happy thing to drop in my lap. This was a death. My best friend's stepmother, um, my chosen brother's mom, stepmother, um, and it had me to had me start thinking about mourning, um, which is something that I do a lot in my professional capacity as a chaplain, but it's not something that I have really confronted a lot in my personal life or in my um, personal practice. Um, among a few of the things that I was thinking about in this time was the way that mourning can be a gateway to practice or mourning can itself be a practice. 
And so I wanted to talk about that tonight. This past August, I started uh, my second year at Northwestern Memorial Hospital as a chaplain. I did my residency this past year, and now I am a staff chaplain. I work the night shift. So for two nights a week, I am the spiritual care department for 1,500 beds in downtown Chicago. And as you may have guessed, I don't typically minister to a lot of Buddhists. Uh, it is a big hospital, but it's not that big. And which means a lot of times I'm a Buddhist chaplain who is ministering to mostly Christians. Um, and this isn't really a deal breaker. I'm very happy to swim in these very sacred interfaith waters. There's a lot there um, for any sort of spiritual practice. Because ultimately, the sort of meat of what I do a lot of the times beyond any of my own personal religious practice or my patient's personal religious practice is meeting people at a particular moment in their lives and helping them to make sense of whatever the chaos they are currently in might be and to make sense of the suffering that they're facing um, to try and see what sort of lessons we can pull from this, what sort of meaning we can constellate out of these moments that um, may or may not be completely meaningless. I have been doing this for about two years. I don't have an answer to suffering yet. It might take a little bit more time than that. And it made me feel good as I was doing my uh, sort of reading, preparing for this talk to find this one quote in opening the hand of thought from Uchijima Roshi, if you guys have not heard of that book. And this is from the very beginning of the book. He's talking about what is Zen practice. And he says that the starting point for Buddhist practice is how a person chooses to live out his or her life. Please don't misunderstand me when I use the words Buddhist practice or Buddhism. I'm not talking about some established religious organization. I'm not concerned with how a person, any person who is completely naked of any religious or philosophical clothes can live out their lives fruitfully. And I think that this is a really lovely idea and a really substantial idea. There's a lot of things to pick apart here. Um, but the way that I look at this and what I take out of this is there's sort of three ideas that this, this notion centers around. There is the idea of Buddhist practice. There is the idea of starting point. And there is the idea of how a person chooses to live out their life. And this idea of how a person chooses to live out their life resonates with my practice as a chaplain. And I think also obviously with our practice as Zen Buddhists, it's not just that we live out our lives in a certain way, but that we choose to live our lives in a certain way. Um, you know, I, as a chaplain, in consolating this meaning, I help people choose to live their lives a certain way in the same way all of us being together in this Zendo, we are helping each other to make meaning. We are helping each other to choose to live our lives in a certain way, right? Sangha accomplishes that. We realize our interdependence in this way here in this room together. And this choice that we make, um, this is not the entirety of Buddhist practice. This is just the starting point. This is where it begins. We choose to practice in a certain way. The question, I think then, the natural question is, what does it mean for this choice to live life in a certain way to be the starting point for Buddhist practice? 
um, Dogen, our founder, if you are familiar with any of Dogen's writings, was very fond of an idea um, that he called what we translate as ceaseless practice or Japanese Kyoji Dokan. The idea being that there is this great practice, this ceaseless practice, which uh, comes to us from our Buddha ancestors. This is something that is always happening, something that is ceaselessly operating. It has been operating. It will continue to operate regardless of our uh, personal input in this thing. What Dogen says is that the great way of Buddhas and ancestors invariably involves unsurpassed ceaseless practice. This practice rolls on in a cyclic manner without interruption. Not a moment's gap has occurred and they are giving rise to the intention to realize Buddhahood. Uh, the there here is the Buddhas and ancestors. In there doing the training and practice, in there experiencing enlightenment, and in there realizing nirvana. For the great way of ceaseless practice rolls on just like this. As a result, the practice is not done by forcing oneself to do it, and it is not done by being forced to do it by someone else. It is a ceaseless practice that is never tainted by forcing. The merits from this ceaseless practice sustain us and sustain others. So I'll I'll read that again just for emphasis. As a result, the practice is not one done by forcing oneself to do it, and it is not done by being forced to do it by someone else. It is a ceaseless practice that is never tainted by forcing. The merits from this ceaseless practice sustain us, and they sustain others. And by the way, this is from a fascicle called Gyoji, which is the longest in the Shobogenzo. So evidently it's pretty important. Dogen says the underlying principle of this practice is that the whole universe in all 10 directions receives the merit of our ceaseless practice, right? It's always happening. It extends out to the entire universe. Though others may not recognize it, though we might not recognize it, still it is so. And this is a statement about interdependence. This principle of ceaseless practice um, only works, it only functions because all things are connected. If everything was not interdependent, ceaseless practice could not be ceaseless practice. And it's important, um, this sort of line that Dogen draws between the interdependence and our recognition of it. Um, He makes it very clear that ceaseless practice is a thing that happens ironically enough, independent of our awareness of it. We can be aware of ceaseless practice or we cannot be aware of it, but regardless, it is ceaseless practicing. Mm -hmm. The ceaseless practice that has brought us into existence is present in every single thought and thing, all of which arise due to coexisting conditions, and we just do not realize that we are actually doing ceaseless practice. So doing ceaseless practice and knowing you are doing ceaseless practice is not always the same thing. I like um, this very kind of poetic and yet at the same time, very applicable description Dogen writes where he says to see a flower opening or a leaf falling in the here and now is to practice, to fully see what ceaseless practice is. There is no polishing of the mirror or smashing of the mirror that is not ceaseless practice. But I think we can't fully explore this idea of ceaseless practice without going back 
to this original thought about practice, which is that the starting point of our Buddhist practice is how a person chooses to live out their life. Buddhist practice has to do with living fruitfully, um, and particularly it has to do with the choice that marks Buddhist practice as a choice to live life in a certain way. The particular Buddhist way of life is this sort of fruitful practice because Uchiji Marosha says it's in accord with something that is true about reality, right? These are the noble truths. This truth relates to what it means to be alive and what it means to die. This is the great matter of life and death. And it leads us, among other things, to a realization of suffering as inherent to life, that's bound up with life. The way that he puts it is that suffering is not something that comes to attack me periodically. My whole life as it is, is suffering. Nevertheless, I go around fighting with people, loving them, ignoring them, without ever being able to actually truly see this suffering. Suffering in the deepest sense is all of that. In other words, as long as this matter of life and death remains unclear, everything in the world suffers, right? That's the the flower opening and the leaf falling in the here and now. The point that I think that I've been trying to work through all of these thoughts about ceaseless practice and mourning and presence to it choice is that mourning represents a very rich and ironically enough, a very vibrant aspect of our practice, practice which is ceaseless thanks to Buddha ancestors, and practice mourning as a Dharma gate, uh, this practice which can allow us to face and clarify the great matter of life and death. When I am mourning with the families who I come across, what I think that I'm actually doing most effectively, the thing that is most important is cultivating a mindfulness towards interdependence, um, bringing about an awareness in the here and now of the connections that we have connections in our day-to-day life and connections that go beyond day-to-day life. There's the saying in the Jewish tradition that we say in mourning, may their memory be a blessing And I think this kind of hints at this sort of interconnection. The idea being that when we mourn, we're honoring interdependence, right? There is interdependence in letting a loved one's memory be a blessing to us, even if that loved one is no longer with us in body. Because a person doesn't simply cease to exist when they die. There is still a connection at the same time that we feel this terrible disconnection Um, these people continue to exist with us in our mind, uh, even though they might not be with us in body. Um, These people shape us as long as we remember them. And actually even further than that, when we consider all the ways that people influence us in sort of unconscious manners, or we think about these family members who literally shaped us into the people (coughs) we came to be. I think about, um, this sort of interdependence when I think about the importance of a ceremony such as the Sagaki ceremony coming up this weekend, right? We are honoring those who came before us. We are honoring hungry ghosts. Um, We are drawing awareness to the fact that those who have come before us 
exist with us in some way, even if they are not with us in body. Mourning is this deeply social experience, um, and it allows us to see the connections on this social level, as in on a Sangha level. Um, we talk about Sangha as one of the three jewels, and I think mourning brings our awareness to this in that mourning is a deeply social experience, right? When I think about this mourning that I mentioned earlier, mourning for my best friend's stepmother, this is a person who I was not necessarily the closest with, but that doesn't mean that I didn't mourn for her in the way that I mourned for my best friend or that I mourned for her in the way that I mourned for her children. I mourned for her husband, her family. This sort of feeling, it was a very shocking one to me almost that I could be struck with this sadness, even for a person whose life did not intersect with me in such a, a significant way to realize that, no, this, this intersection was significant. Um, it was so significant that I booked a flight from Chicago to Boston and uprooted my life for a few days to go and you know, take care of these social, these Sangha commitments. Just the sight of another person's grief can affect us in these deep ways and reveal the nature of our interdependence. Again, the starting point for Buddhist practice is how a person chooses to live out his or her life. What I've tried to explain here is the way that I think mourning can be, strangely enough, one of these starting points. Um, Mourning in this cycle of ceaseless practice is a pause point for us, is a point for us to stop and take inventory and for us to be present in the here and now to notice the connections that we are fostering, to think about the way that we act in our lives in response to suffering, and to bring out these connections in a way that relieve the sufferings for all beings. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, um, For anyone uh, at the room in Ebenezer or here online, If you have questions, comments, responses, reflections uh, from Alex's talk, please feel free. Please share with us. Thank you for an excellent talk, Alex. Um, And I think a very necessary one, um, very moving uh, for me. Uh, I just drove our caregiver home for that caregives for my mom. And in the 30 minutes that it took me to get her home, she was telling me how burnt out she got in previous caregiving jobs. She had to take a break uh, because her clients had died on her and the grief had just um, added up. And so I just literally got through with a half hour discussion with her on mourning and grieving Uh, And then your talk came along, which was excellently done. And it reminded me that uh, how important it is. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk uh, in, in Buddhist literature and among people about being present, being present, being present. And of course that, that is so important, but I think many people somehow think that Buddhism or maybe that when they come to it, is only about uh, 
getting rid of stress, you know, and trying to trying to achieve some sort of happiness. And your talk, I think, reminded me that it's it's very important to be present with all of life, uh, and and certainly mourning and grieving is uh, a vital part of of all of life. So um, deep thanks for for a well given talk on an important topic. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Brian. Yes, I, I, I like this. I think there's something really interesting about grief and presence and the relationship between those. Um, there's something that's on the tip of my brain that what you say, said made me think of, and it's not coming to me right now. So mm-hmm. if it comes back, I'll interrupt someone and shout it out. I remember what it is. I think, um, you know, one, one, one thought that I have is that Buddhism to the uninitiated might sound kind of macabre or nihilist when we think about this idea that life is suffering and this, this suffering that is inherent to our reality. Um, and I think there's something to be said about mourning as an antidote to that approach towards what it means to suffer. Um, I think if we can be with our mourning and if we can grieve in a way that is present to all aspects of that grief, that can take the sting out of what it means to say that suffering is inherent to life. Thank you. David Weiner has something. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Um, two things. Uh, one, I'm going to kind of joust with you a little bit. Um, you know, I don't think that, at least from some things that I have read, and I'm a very, <laughs> it's a, a minuscule amount <laughs> compared to most people. But one thing that I, I read said that, that life is suffering is a mistranslation. That really there is suffering in life. That life isn't always suffering. That there is joy, there is realization. And that's especially in the sense when we find ourselves truly interconnected with somebody else, there is a lack of suffering, if not joy itself. So I would just say that, you know, because I actually have that for my, one of my classes right now at Loyola, where a guy in a book said, life is suffering. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> it's not my understanding. So it's just a thought I'm throwing out there and throwing it out to Tigan as well to hear your your comment on that. But I also want to say, um, from my own experience, I find myself becoming teary-eyed with patients that I see uh, when I think of what they are going through, um, sometimes anticipating death. They're not there yet, but to walk into a room with a woman who has four-stage bile cancer is metastasized all over her body. You know, she's anticipating grief. And to talk with her and just sit with her will bring tears to my eyes. And um, I haven't talked to my teacher yet, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether chaplains are supposed to be dry-eyed or not. (laughs) This chaplain is not dry-eyed. Yeah, I just wanted to get your take that you had that same experience. Oh, I, I cry with patients all the time. Yeah. I think a lot of times we're, we're the professionals who are allowed to cry. So keep crying. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, 
I would also say I, I don't I don't perceive any jousting between us. I don't think life is is wholly just suffering. I've heard that there's no crying in baseball, but there sure is in Buddhism. <laughs> well, it depends if you're a Yankee fan or not. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I appreciate again. I appreciate uh, Alex what you're saying, and and David also, and Brian. Uh, you were talking about your experience with a, a friend's stepmother who you felt you weren't so close with, but you know, we can also feel mourning and grieving when we hear about somebody we don't even know, you know, we hear about horrific stories of people's pain or dying suddenly, or, you know, uh, part of what practice does for us. And I appreciate you bringing up Gyoji continuous practice. So important in our tradition uh, is, um, you know, a lot, it makes us vulnerable to feeling what we feel. And uh, that's not always pleasant or pretty, but it's, it's real. So I, I appreciated how you, you know, and also, you know, just another thought that in some ways mourning or grieving is a way of celebrating uh, those who've passed. So it, it's, it's not just one thing anyway. Um, that wasn't so coherent, but it, uh, anyway, thank you, Alex. Other comments, other people have, everybody here, I would, I would wager, has some experience of grieving or mourning. So anybody who wants to share something about that, please feel free. Well, I've got my hand up, so I'll just jump in if that's okay. Um, it's hard to see because there's a candle like right behind where my hand would be, but there we go. Um, so thank you for your talk, Alex. I, um, I, it just brought to mind my experience when my mom died this summer. Um, she had been in a slow decline for a number of years, but at the end it was very, very swift. And, um, my family, you know, we're New England wasps and we're not especially good with expressing or talking about or processing feelings. But I was very struck by and also, you know, pleased and proud by the way that um, my family came together to support my mom. My mom said at, at, in the end said, you know, I'm, I'm DNR and I do not want any more treatment. And I wasn't there, but my dad and my sister were able to kind of just go with that and support her and say, okay, this is what she wants. And we're going to help her, you know, through this. And then with the grief, you know, with all of our grief after she passed, it was, you know, it was painful, but it also was, you know, it seemed like whenever one person was breaking down, there were others to help hold them up. And I think that that's, that, that seems to be one of the, the real benefits of chaplaincy as well as, as Sangha is that we can help each other, to accept reality and and just you know with compassion and and kindness and and a sense of shared reality we we just we just support continue to support each other in in accepting it and just you know moving through it thank so you your talk made me made me think about that 
what what that makes me think of is it makes me think in response to what David said, and you know what you were mentioning about this beautiful thing where families come together to support each other. Um, it makes me think that you know this mourning, like, like exactly what you were mentioning, mourning can be a time of sadness, and yet at the same time, mourning is also people coming together and people celebrating whoever it might be. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, yeah, I, I have a question for you. It's probably for David too and other chaplains. Is you know, there, there's such a significant difference between your work and let's say the, the physicians who work with these patients who because of the amount of time they're allowed with the people and the number of cases they have and, and just the work, um, they tend to maintain a distance and Patients tend to become procedures rather than people. But that's not something a chaplain can do. I mean, you're making a connection and opening to that person's state of mind, whatever that is. And I guess the question I have is, um, how is it that you are able to do that and um, just not be overcome by the amount of suffering and fear that you might run into? It's very much, for me, it's a process of being present and open in the, more, in the moment to everything that is there. Um, and that's why if you're a chaplain, you need to go to school for three years to basically, for me, my experience of training is basically this process of learning to see everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly in a situation, which is very similar to Zazen. Um, in a lot of ways. And so for me, it's a matter of going into the room completely open, completely vulnerable and saying, while I am probably going to have to inhabit something that is very dark that I wouldn't have been in otherwise, I will also probably learn something very important here. And I will probably see something very light that I wouldn't have expected either. I would say for, for me, it's something that um, it's come up a couple of times in, in class, but something that I have for myself as well is that when you go into a room, it's not about me. It's about the other person. So I'm totally there. The more I'm there for them, the, actually the easier it is for me. When I bring in my, oh, my, this reminds me of when my father died or when my mother died, and then I have struggles you know, then I'm struggling. I'm struggling with my own grief. But if I focus on serving others, you know, if I'm there as Joan Halifax, who wrote on being and dying, and the death and dying, you know, from Upaya Zen Center in 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 uh, at Santa Fe, and she says, just bear witness. And if I'm there to bear witness, it's easier in a sense for me because I'm sharing with them. I am connected to them, and it is personal, and I am deeply moved. And at the same time, it's not my own. It's not my father. It's not my sister. So um, there is a difference there. It's not like I've cut myself off from them. I don't think you have that. You don't have that sense of cutting yourself off. But you're just being with them. It becomes such an enriching experience. It just becomes an to have that sense of connection. It's just like 
It's mind-boggling. Walking into a patient room, a patient's room is a lot like walking into a Zendo, in my experience. And, and there are, and I have seen, doc, I've seen doctors who are cold as ice and sons of bitches, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, just absolutely. Uh, and I've seen doctors who have cried. And, and when I come in and they just left the patient, they just pulled you know, the court out and patients flatline and gone and they have tears in their eyes and they know I'm coming in to be with the family and they cast me a look that says, I'm sorry, you know, that th- there are, there are people who are like that. It's both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it, I think is though, if I may say else, Part is that so many doctors feel that death is a failure. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of seeing that death is a life gone. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, some are so hung up on, uh, if I've only done this or if I've only done that, the patient would have survived. And some people are just passionately trying to help the family and help the person, the patient. And those are the ones who come up to that. I think I see anything from Bryant. Bryant has something else. Yeah, just uh, to David's comment and and the turn of conversation reminded me of uh, the important contribution that Zen has given. Uh, I believe it was uh, Zen in California, the hospice project, that was one of the original ideas sort of germinating ideas for the whole hospice concept that, you know, we accept the naturalness of dying rather than trying to, you know, throw Western medicine right up to the last minute, you know, let's, let's try to think of the human being who's experiencing this dying and ease their, ease their journey uh, at, you know, towards, towards the end, ease their suffering and their pain uh, as best we can, rather than, you know, do everything we can to, to extract and squeeze one extra minute of life with machines and, and you know, uh, doctors poking and prodding. And I'm probably mischaracterizing it, but just that old idea, which I think does spring from Buddhism, the acceptance of the totality which Tigan give a gave a great seminar over the weekend on on Huayan Buddhism, which expands our aperture, you know, to the totality. And certainly grief and suffering and dying, when accepted as part of that totality, we can approach it in a different way, I think in a in a healing way and in a way that um doesn't try and push it away, um, accepts it as a natural part of the process of life, life and death. So, uh, so I think Buddhism had a great contribution to the Western civilization world, which traditionally had this sort of, you know, pain and suffering and death are to be ignored or, or pushed away or uh, not talked about. And I think that did a great disservice probably to many millions who were dying and didn't receive 
I guess, the full presence of what they could have from those around them who couldn't fully accept uh, the death process as part of the life process. So I guess I'll end my comment there. Thank you, Brian. I wanted to build on that um, also that when I, you know, I, I think there might be a lot at play with physicians and, you know, the fear of, of litigation or, or, you know, partly the, the, the commitment and the calling that bring people to that profession, but it, um, it does seem like it's, there's a lot of fear in that moment that caused people to feel like they've failed. You know, I've, I've had in my adult life, I've had, three cats, you know, who have transitioned out of this world. And, you know, and, and but that was all it took for me to realize that, you know, it, it actually helped a lot with my mom, because you, you know, you've had that when you've had that experience a few times, and you can stay with it, you realize you're always going to feel, you know, some uncertainty was this, could I have done more? Was this the right moment? But you, but you, you know, you, if you can relax with it a little bit, you can realize that on the balance, this is, this is where things are trending and you don't have to, you don't have to fight it and you don't have to fear it. And you can kind of, kind of live with, with some of the uncertainty. I think that's, that's hard when um, you know, your, your profession is based on coming up with some new thing, but, but I think we can, we can support um, as, as, as Buddhists, we can support everyone um, in just accepting reality and relaxing with within what's happening. Yes, and, and Aisha, I will say to that that um, yeah, physicians physicians are my colleagues, and so I, I could say some some not nice things about them, but I can also say some very nice things about them. Um, a lot of my work, actually, as a night chaplain, has to do with supporting the physician and supporting the care team. Um, because when it's 3 a.m., those are the people who kind of get a brunt of a lot of it. And yeah, like you say, I mean, there's a lot going on. Uh, they do get a little bit of a raw deal where if you are a physician in this society, what you are is a fixer. And if you can't fix it, then you have failed. Um, I, we're getting far afield, so I, won't, I could talk all about physicians and chaplains and the way that we interface with each other. But yes, this is uh, just a reminder that there's there's so much going on all the time. I I hope they appreciate your support because they really do need it, and and I think that it I it can only help. I I have seen I I lead mindfulness with physicians very regularly. It's they they seem to appreciate it, so we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Just to comment briefly on the idea of fixing, I think what we're talking about, and <clears throat> thanks to Alex and Bryant and David and everyone who's spoken, that um, healing is not the same as fixing. Healing includes uh, how do we have a, a wholehearted dying, perhaps? How do we heal? Um, you know, not the not the death as opposed to life, but the sadness, regret, all of that, um, and also you know the joy and see how that's part of it. So, uh, as a as a um, 
a model rather than pathology and you know seeing seeing illness that needs or, or defects even that need to be fixed i mean there's this idea that it you know that if you get if you get sick there's something morally or spiritually wrong with you and that's just insidious uh how do we promote healing so we are as alex mentioned and thank you alex we are doing a sagaki ceremony next sunday morning and that is about um in some ways healing and honoring the hungry ghosts those who've passed and those who are those who've passed and are restless and and dissatisfied about uh, their passing um and so, yes, uh, and Bryant, I mean, I could go into a whole rap about the history of hospice and, and Zen and, and, and San Francisco Zen Center, and I won't. But, uh, yeah, to, Buddhism can offer a way of seeing wholeness and healing that is not about life as opposed to death. So, anyway, thank you for, thank you, everyone who helped with this. I think, Mike, you want to say something. Um, I just wanted to ask a question, um, which I guess I hadn't really thought about it before, that chaplains also work with the actual like physicians that are there, too. Um, I wonder if you David, maybe would elaborate in whatever time we have about like, what that is involved. Like, is it similar to patients? Like, how is it different? Like, how... Like, it's it's similar, and it's, I mean, I can talk about one case I had in particular where it was, you know, a very young woman. It was a complicated case for a bunch of different reasons. It was obviously very sad. Um, she was there for a while, and so the care team, you know, they, they made their acquaintances with her and with her husband and with her family. Um, and so, you know, ultimately the night came that the everything stopped working and she died, and... and uh, you know, the team there is sad because they have gotten to know this person. They've gotten to know this family. There is this sense of even, even the most well-adjusted, healthiest physician or nurse in the world, even the person with like the strongest understanding that I did every single thing I could and there's nothing more I could have done, that person is still going to feel guilty about what happened and still feel like, what if I couldn't do more? So in, in being a chaplain for staff people, it's a lot of being there and saying, okay, let's try and be present in this moment and be present with this pain. And let's take what we can from this experience and make our care better next time. Um, let's take, you know, what is the blessing that this experience is giving us? What can we take forward to the next thing? Ultimately, it's about when people get to the point of you know, this was a horrible death and we paged the team and they didn't come. And if they had come, this person would have survived. How do we get from that point to a point of you are doing this job for a reason? What is keeping you here? I find that I've come out of rooms where there's been you know, sadness going on, some mourning or grief, and, and the caregivers are, are there also. It's just a matter of being with them and their grief and saying, yeah, this is, re- this is really hard. And just acknowledging their, their grief, and just being with them and their grief. You know, it's not like I could take it away. I can't, you know, but just to be with them in their grief and say, and I, I understand I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, the same, the same. 
and also thank them for what they did. Say, you know, thank you, Nair. Or even if I don't understand, I can just listen. Yeah. Funny, just funny story. When I left the Lexington Brothers Hospital and I saw this doctor, who I think was a great doctor at night, as I as, as I just caught him just as he was going in for an organ donation operation. <laughs> um, and I happened to see him. I wanted to see him, but I couldn't find him. It was like my last day, and I found him at this crazy moment. And I said, I hope that my doctor is as compassionate as you are. And and uh, he just gave me a big hug. And, you know, that's that's nice to be able to say that to him and for him to hear it and him to receive it so well. That's what I could do with a physician or with, a, you know, other staff. Yeah, I think, I think one of the most courageous acts that I've ever witnessed in my life was a physician arguing with his entire team where the patient basically said in no unclear terms, I'm done. And the rest of the team was like, no, 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 we have to keep going. And this physician is like, no, she said she's done. And they turned everything off after that. So that's the sort of stuff we have to be there to support. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. I think maybe on that note, um, maybe we're done for tonight, but all of this is ongoing, uh, life and death and, uh, for all of us. And, uh, so, uh, I'm gonna make Deborah had her hand up for a while. I feel oh, okay, yeah, please go ahead. Okay, so I'm on an iPhone. Um, I just wanted to mention this as a point of view. I, um, everyone's talking about death, but I'm, um, I just decided to volunteer as a with a group that is where I am like a grief facilitator. And I'm dealing with parents that have lost a child for many reasons. Um, I won't go into them all. And um, it's an unknown area because I've not lost a child. I'm not technically qualified. But um, it's very interesting to me to do this practice. I call it, It's like my work practice because um, I'm using my Zen mind of not knowing. There, I'm not allowed to use any. I'm trained as a nurse. I spent a lot of years studying grief. But in a way, I can't use that. I'm not a counselor. So I'm just with people that are truly grieving. And I, I don't, I came in late to your talk, Alex, and I do apologize, but you know, grief is not, I don't know if it was brought up today. I hear death dying and then people leaving hospitals, but dealing, being around people that are processing grief. Some of these people in the group have been there four years, the, the loss of a loved one. So I'm just sharing a kind of that. I don't have an answer, but I just wanted to throw that in this concept of grief and it's a, it's an alive thing, but it can be very hard for people. That's what I'm witnessing. So I just wanted to bring that up. And again, it may be off topic, but I just wanted to bring it up. So thank you. Thank you, Deborah. 